0: Welcome to
1: the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to
0: awakeningchurch.com. Hey, good morning, Awakening. Great to see you. Grab a seat if you're new. My name's Ryan. We're going to begin this morning... Um, a little bit differently than normal, as we kick off this series called Exile, the sermon title this morning is called The Tension of Home. Uh, can you just say that to your neighbor real quick? The tension of home. Not the tension in your home, not to be confused with that. Uh, and to kick off our series, I invited my buddy Jesus. Some of you knew, uh, know him as he got baptized at our birthday a little while ago. Jesus. Yeah. And that's so cool is a med student at Stanford, and he lives in this tension and idea of home as he's also an un- undocumented immigrant, and we've had a lot of opportunity over the last few months to talk through this uh, tension that you feel, and I asked him to share a little bit with you about how, uh, what the word home means and this idea of tension of this idea of home. Would you mind sharing? Thanks. My
1: friend. Yeah. So, thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, I am one of 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. I am one of 800,000 DACA Dreamer students here, and I am one of 100 undocumented medical students in our whole country. And um, as an immigrant, um, I'm, my whole journey has been you know, defining this idea of home. Like, how do you define home? What constitutes home? Um, and for me, uh, you know, my journey of really defining that started um, a, few, a few years back. I'm currently 23. I came to this country when I was 10. Um, and my family and I, we crossed the desert on a three-day journey of just a um, really hard journey of going through the desert. We landed in San Diego, which is where I grew up for the majority of my life. And um, we lived in this cozy but um, cramped uh, room with 20 other people, and that was kind of like the first idea of, of what home meant. And so um, growing up, uh, my life was, from middle school through high school, was get up at 4 a.m., go pick strawberries in really terrible working conditions, run to school, come back to school, help my family, and neither of my family had no more than an elementary school education. and so. I really struggled in school. I really struggled, you know, um, I didn't, my native language is called Triqui because I'm indigenous Mexican actually. And so I struggled. I didn't fit in with the Latino kids. I didn't fit in with the white kids. I didn't fit in anywhere. Um, And so I really struggled to find, you know, my place. And so what really challenged this idea of home for me was when unfortunately my father was deported when I was in high school. And then my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and so um, my whole family went back to Mexico, and I was left alone in this country since high school. But some teachers really believed in me, and so they they took me in, and they, they became like family to me. Um, and so for me, I, home has always been these um, places where I feel safe, where people have created safety for me, where they look past, you know, my status, and they say, you belong here. And so... Um, um, Yeah, with losing my family and being alone in this country, I didn't really know what the future held for me. Fortunately, I got a full ride to UC Berkeley where I studied environmental science, public health, uh, and eventually, um, uh, uh, unfortunately during that time, I also lost my mom from cancer and I couldn't go back to Mexico to see her because if I left the country, I wouldn't be allowed back in. So that really challenged me and really broke me in a lot of different pieces. But that, that was also the time where I became a Christian and found a community at Berkeley. Out of all places, you know, I became a Christian at Berkeley. Um, but yeah, and then I'm, eventually I got a, a four-ride to, to Stanford Medical School, and that, that's where I've been, and I have a really wonderful community. I have a community here, and uh, within the next six weeks, you'll be hearing parts of my story and you know, living in this tension of being undocumented in the time of, you know, in the light of what's going on politically right now. There's a lot of tension. And um, unfortunately, I feel like media from both sides does not properly depict a lot of our stories. And so I just like to encourage everybody that, to just come open-minded because um, you know, we're not who you think we are. We are your doctors. We are your nurses. We pick your food. We're your lawyers. We literally sit next to you in church. And so, um, you know, I just hope that you can hear my story as, as someone who used to be a picker to now a medical student uh, and, um, yeah, just, just open your heart to that. The last thing that I wanted to end with was uh, oftentimes there's the saying in the undocumented community of coming out because we're coming out and sharing our stories, and it's hard, it's scary. You know, we don't know how people are going to react, um, but I'd like to think a bit more as letting you in. So my question is, how as Christians, what are you all going to do, you know, when when we let you in into our stories? You know, they're, whether you realize it or not, there's probably someone next to you who's undocumented. You maybe have a coworker. You maybe have a friend who, you know, it's a scary time to talk about our stories, but I'd just like to encourage you to be open-minded and uh, hear our stories um, as we open up. Thank you. Awesome.
0: Thank you. Good job, buddy. I appreciate it. And uh, just his story, I think, will be awesome to hear just little snippets of his experience And then as we begin to talk through it, through the biblical lens of what God's doing in our lives as well. Uh, This morning, as we kick off this new um, series, Exiles, the question before us is simply this. How are followers of Jesus to live in the ever-turbulent 21st century? Like, How are we actually to go about our life? You think about the 21st century, we're we're only just about 20 years into it. It's one that has seen the rise of terrorism in a way that our world hasn't seen. Climate change, increased polarization, globalization. Uh, Silicon Valley is at the heart of some of this turbulence, isn't it, when it comes to AI and how that's going to affect us, uh, augmented reality, gene editing, what does it mean to even be a human now is in question. In the ever turbulent 21st century is a century that is, in our country, post Christian, in our city, in our culture, anti Christian. How are followers of Jesus to live in the ever-turbulent world that we are in? God's answer to that question is the book of 1 Peter. We're going to spend the next six weeks studying and journeying through this book and unpacking that question and what does it look like for us uh, in fact, I love the book of First Peter, and it's a little uh, misleading to call it a book. If you got your Bibles, open up to First Peter, chapter one. You'll notice that it starts off this way: "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." See, it's it's not a book; it's a letter. This is the letter of Peter to a people. And so just a little bit of background as we dive into this book and we begin to journey and unpack what God has for us the next six weeks is uh, the author is the Apostle Peter. He's, He's one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he's one of the inner three. If you want a little more background, go back and listen to our Easter sermon as we taught the resurrection through the eyes of Peter. He's actually riding from Rome and he's undergoing this intense time where he's uh, imprisoned for his faith and he's writing from Rome to these Gentile believers in Asia Minor. The audience are these um, Gentile believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. In fact, for you to picture it and understand it, I put this little map up here for you to see. Next slide, thank you. And so for those of you who can see the boot up in the left corner, that's Italy and Rome's up there. And so the Apostle Paul's writing from there, and then you see all these Bithynia, Pontus, and Iconium, Cappadocia, all these. He's writing to all these churches or all these cities. It was intended to be a circular letter, meaning that it was a letter written to circulate and go To encourage all of these different cities and churches uh, in the Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. It was written around AD 63, AD 65. Many scholars, it was written in A.D. 64. Now, Peter, uh, at that time in Rome, the emperor is the Emperor Nero, who, if you study history and it's a fascinating study, he's insane. Um, and there's a lot that we could go down that rabbit trail. But, But for this conversation, in AD 64, Nero burns Rome, and he blames the Christians. And so the occasion for writing is Peter is this widespread persecution of followers of Jesus after Nero has burned Rome. Now, Christians, for the first few decades of Christianity post the resurrection, the first, you know, three, almost four decades. Uh, they didn't experience global or governmental persecution, per se. They experienced local persecution. Christianity was known as a sect or a sub-sect of Judaism, and so it, it was a... a, a, a a legal religion at the time. And so they experienced persecution from other Jews locally. Jews didn't like them. You read in the book of Acts as Paul was one of the chief persecutors of the faith. And they also experienced persecution Uh, From family members, the minute you became a Christian and you no longer worship the family gods and idols, then you were ostracized from your family. You're actually uh, many times ostracized from society and the economy as much of the economic... Workings happened in the religious centers, the the pagan temples, and so they experienced this local persecution. Post Nero, all of a sudden now we have widespread governmental, even global persecution of the saints. And so Peter is writing from Rome in the epicenter of where this persecution is going to come from to these Gentile believers who are about to experience something they had yet to experience as followers of Jesus. And here's the major theme of this book that he's going to tell this group, uh, tell these churches in Asia Minor. Live as exiles. We're going to unpack this concept this morning. What does it mean to be an exile? Live as exiles who possess a living hope. That's next week, by the way. We're going to talk all about a living hope. And how do you have hope in such a messed up world? Don't you want to know that? As Christians, we are bearers of a living hope. Live as exiles who possess a living hope that produces holy living. That there is this this way about our lives that is supposed to be set apart and distinct. Roger Raymer, a theologian, And it writes in his commentary, this epistle could be understood as a handbook written for ambassadors to a hostile foreign land. The author, knowing persecution would arise, carefully prescribed conduct designed to bring honor to the one they represented. William Barclay in his commentary writes this, they are people whose king is God, whose home is eternity, and who are exiles in the world. I like that line whose king is God, whose home is eternity, and whose, who are exiles in the world. In fact, the answer to the question, how are followers of Jesus to live in the ever-turbulent 21st century is we are to live as exiles. That's the call. Notice how the Apostle Peter opens up his letter. He says, to God's elect exiles scattered through the provinces. Peter is using distinctly Jewish language that was uh, set aside or designated solely for the Jewish people. He's using language that Only Jewish people used of themselves and for themselves, and now he's applying it to the Gentile followers of Jesus. He uses the word God's elect or God's chosen. And this is, was used of the Jewish people, that they were the chosen people of God. They were the elect nation. He, he then uses this idea of exile, and exile was the prominent identity of the Jewish people once they were taken into captivity. That word scattered or dispersed, depending on your translation, is actually a technical term, the diaspora. It was what the Jews identified as, as they were the the, the diaspora scattered throughout, specifically those who were away from Jerusalem. And so if we're going to understand how we're to live as followers of Jesus, we actually have to understand the Jewish understanding of exile. Exile. How did they see and interpret this? Because Peter's saying, guess what? Persecution and hardships coming, and you have a way of engaging and actually conquering and living with hope and distinctly in this world, but you have to reframe the way you're, you understand all of life. In fact, there is a, a, a perspective shift that you have to embrace, and it's the perspective of exile. And here's the problem with modern Christianity. Or American Christianity, and here's the problem with this sermon: we don't want to be exiles, do we? That's why having Jesus share his story and his tension of home is—we is don't ever want to live in the in-between, in the tension of unknowing. We don't want to be the exile; we want to be the elite. And yet, the call of Christ on our lives, if we're actually truly going to flourish, is walking in the way of our master. The way of our master, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. The way of our master said, I lay down my life for my friends, and you are my friends. Friends. The way of our master bore the cross and sin and shame for the good of his world and his creation and those he loved. This is the way of Jesus and it is the way of exile. So let me unpack for the remainder of our time this Jewish understanding of exile that will begin to inform our understanding of how we're to go about life in the 21st century. And to do this, we're going to look at another letter. This letter is from the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem right after Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon. And in that Babylon took all the princes, all the priests, took all these, you know, high important figures out into exile back to Babylon. And he's writing this letter to them, letting them know, okay, how are you to live now that you're not in Jerusalem? This is what Jeremiah says. And the first idea or understanding of exile is simply this. Babylon is not your new home. Babylon is not your new home. Jeremiah 29.1, this is the le- text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, Nebuchadnezzar carried into, help me say it right here, exile. exile, not into your new home, into exile, into being a sojourner, being one who's displaced from Jerusalem To Babylon, William Barclay, again, in his commentary, he does an excellent job in the historical work, writes this. Wherever the exiled Jews settled, their eyes were always towards Jerusalem. This is interesting. Notice this. In foreign countries, the synagogues were so built that when the worshipers entered, they were facing towards Jerusalem. However useful as citizens of their adopted countries, the Jews were, uh, the greatest loyalty was to Jerusalem. First, the Jewish understanding of exile was our exile is not our home. Babylon is not our new home. It's not like we just upped and moved and now we're in a new place and so we're going to make this home. There is a home, we are not currently in it, and so we're going to live as dual citizens where we are. Now, this is a radical perspective shift for the audience that Peter is writing. And Peter is actually writing uh, from Rome, in which he calls Babylon. And he calls it Babylon, and the reason for that is Babylon became this word synonymous with the ruling world power that is opposed to the kingdom of God. You'll find it again used in Revelation, speaking of the ruling world power that is anti-God's kingdom. And he's saying, okay, Gentile believer, I want you to begin to think as an exile, that where you live is no longer your home. But I grew up there. But I was born there. I've never lived anywhere else. The minute you stepped into a relationship with Jesus, what took place was a spiritual birth and you were once were dead, now alive, and you stepped into a new family and you now have a new home. And so we live in the tension of home. We live in the tension that this is not our home and there is a home awaiting us. And so we like the Jewish who would keep our eyes focused on Jerusalem, recognize this is not our home. Silicon Valley is not your home. America, follower of Jesus, is not your home. You may reside there, but it is not your home. This planet, by the way, our world is not our home We have one who has gone to prepare a place for us. Uh, So, um, I've been renting a house for 12 years. We moved in in July of 20... No, not July, but August of 27 or 2007. However you say that. (laughs) How do you you say that anymore? I don't don't know. Now, we, we have lived in this house for 12 years. However, I have been completely aware, though we live there, we have made it a home. It is not my home. I do not own it. I am a renter. I am simply a resident for a season and a time. I don't own the property. And so there's things that we'd like to do to the home that we cannot do to the home because we do not own it. In fact, there's a whole remodel we would dream of doing to this home, walls we had knocked down, expansions that we do, not that we could afford it, but that what we would do if it was our home. And yet it's not our home. We rent. We love it. It's nice. And yet there's this perspective for us. We live there. But recognize that we're renters and not owners. And so the way we live there is different than if we were owners. It's true for us as followers of Jesus that we have to recognize we are renters in this world, owners in eternity. And so so the way we go about our life should be different. The way we set up our shop should be different. The permanence by which we place our values should be different. If this is our home, you place your stake there. If it is not, you just set up a tent. The Jewish understanding of exile first was Babylon is not our home. The second then was the call from Jeremiah says, settle in but don't assimilate. Settle in, but do not assimilate. In fact, he's going to tell them, you're going to be here for a while. Get get settled in. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will too prosper. First picture, we have been carried off. We're in a foreign land. We're not to make it our home. However, we're not to be in this just simple kind of perpetual Airplane hovering state, not moving forward. He says, settle in, but do not assimilate. Do not become like your host nation. Do not adopt their ways. He says, but settle in. Be productive. Settle in. Be present. Settle in. Be proactive. William Barclay again writes this. We are the exiles of eternity, This is never to say we must withdraw from the world, but that in a very real sense, we must be at the same time both in the world and not of it. It's been wisely said that Christians must be apart from the world, but never aloof from it. Now, we rent this house 12 years. The first five years we did not settle in. We were in a holding pattern. rented it one year, thought maybe we might move. Maybe um, we might buy a house. (laughs) Boy, were we crazy. Silicon Valley. Year number two. We're like, oh, well, we should maybe paint the walls. No, we're not going to be here long. We should maybe do this. No. After five years we settled in. We began to realize, okay, how are we going to act in a way that we're going to be present here for as long as God has us here? And so I remember when my wife took this, you know, literally, and I come home from a long um, day, and I had a three-day weekend. I was so excited about it, and I see carpet, In our driveway. There's the carpet that was in our living room. I'm like, why is there carpet in our driveway? And then I see my neighbor Jeff, and I love Jeff. God love Jeff. He's awesome. He's helping my wife rip out the carpet in our living room. And my wife settling in said, well, there are, we may not be able to take down a wall, but we can at least make this room nicer. And I think there's hardwood floor underneath this carpet. And I asked if we could take out the carpet. They said, yes. And so for 2 weeks I spent refinishing a floor. It's beautiful now. Come over check it out the wood. <laughs> See we think And some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And you're just in a holding pattern going like, well, if this isn't our home, then I'm just going to like coast and not engage. And he says, no, no, no. Be proactive. Be present. There's things you can do and ways that you need to lean in instead of lean back. What does this look like? What does it look like to settle in and not assimilate? Jesus would say it this way in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He says, I have given them, speaking of his disciples, your word, and the world, notice this, has hated them. If you thought being a Christian was a popularity contest, you were wrong. Why do they hate them? For they are not of the world. They are not citizens of the world, any more than I, Jesus, am of the world. Now notice his prayer for you and for me. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, not that you remove them, not that you take all the hard stuff out of their life, not that you make, you know, just like, hey, the minute you come to know Jesus, boom, beamed up to heaven. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer isn't that you take them out of that hard job. My prayer isn't that you you take them out of that difficult school environment. My prayer is that you protect them in those moments. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Then notice this. Sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. And then he says this. This is for you, this is for me. As you sent me, Jesus, into the world, I have sent them into the world for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified, set apart, holy. What does it look like to settle in, be present, proactive, productive where you're at, but not assimilate? Let me give you a few ideas. First, To settle in means to be distinct, not detached. We are to be distinct followers of Jesus, not detached from the world. We're to be distinct from the world, but not detached. Notice he said, that is sanctify them, that you are to be set apart, different, holy lives, not weird. Somewhere along the line, some Christian got being distinct means being weird. Or being a jerk. What should be distinct about us? First and foremost, Jesus would say, John uh, 13, 34, our love and the way we love one another should be a distinction of the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, our value system and what we value and hold dear should be a distinction of the church of Jesus Christ. Our words and the way we talk about people should be a distinction of the church of Jesus Christ. The way we work with integrity should be a distinction of the church of Jesus Christ. And we would be a people that live with integrity, that responds in love. When we are reviled and hated by the world, we respond with grace and mercy the way our Savior did. That is what it means to be distinct. And yet what we unintentionally do is we detach. Us foreign no more. A holy huddle. We get into our Christian bubble. I just need to retreat from this world. I just need a break. No, you need protection. Jesus said you need protection, and you need to pray that, and you need to engage in it and realize my life and my calling is that when people look at my life, they should see hope incarnate because Jesus is in me, and Jesus in you is the hope of glory. We're to be distinct, not detached. We're to be sent into the world, not satiated by the world. Notice Jesus said, I send you. Paul would say it this way you are his ambassador. That if Babylon is not your home, heaven is your home. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You are a representative of the king most high. And so everywhere you go, to your workplace, to your, to your school, to your gym, to the, whatever place you hang out and have fun, you are the walking representation of the eternal one to that place. You are sent. You have a purpose. Not satiated. Some of you are like, what in the world is satiated anyways? Satisfied? We get so satisfied with the little things, lesser things, don't we? We we satiate ourselves with pursuit of success and power and upward mobility. The American dream... By the way, it may not be God's dream for your life. Sex and pleasure and possessions. John would say it this way: that the world system is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. First John two sixteen. And we're so easily allowed those things to to be the satisfaction of our soul, but they never fully satisfy, and so we just keep consuming because only Jesus will satisfy. And, and he says, I have a plan for you. You are a sent one of mine. What does it look like to settle in but not assimilate? Be distinct, not detached. Be sent, not satiated. And as a result, we are to be influencers, not infiltrated. Christians are called to influence culture, not run from culture, and not be infiltrated by the culture. Uh, When I teach um, leadership, I always give this... um, this visual to our teams and leaders. I was just with our proteges a couple weeks ago and I gave them this picture of what a leader is. And a lot of times when I unpack what a leader is, I just write up on this whiteboard what makes a good or great leader. And then they give me all these lists of like humble, you know, um, uh, self, uh, not self, um, self giving, serving. I mean, all these things like, you know, has vision, uh, takes you somewhere. And then I just cross out the word leader and write disciple. Because that's what a disciple is. A leader fundamentally is just one who has influence or has influence over someone else. And so I give this picture, and it's just simply the picture of the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. And if you've been around a while, you've heard me give this picture. A thermometer simply reacts or responds to the temperature in the room where a thermostat sets the temperature. Christian, follower of Jesus, you are called to set the spiritual temperature in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, at your school place, not react to it. We are to be infiltrated, influencers rather than being infiltrated. And what we do is we just consume everything and we don't allow our hearts to be um, renewed by God's word. What does it look like to settle in? Be distinct, be sent, and be an influencer. Jeremiah gives us three areas of understanding the Jewish exile. Babylon's not our new home. Settle in, but do not assimilate. And then finally he says this, and we'll close here. Exile is not the end of the story. Exile never was intended to be the end of the story. One of the more famous Old Testament verses is about to come. In fact, it's one of the ones that many of you know, have memorized, have claimed. Um, It might even be your life verse. You might even have it tattooed somewhere on your body. And you had no idea that was written in the context of exile. Notice what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Why? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And you know this verse. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, exile is not the end of the story God has not abandoned you. God has not overlooked you. God has not forgotten you. Exile is not the end of the story. In fact, next week, we're going to unpack this idea of hope. But I just want to give you a little foreshadowing right now. Because he says, to God's elect exile scattered throughout the provinces. And then skip down to verse 3 and notice what his next words out of his mouth are. Praise. How in the world do exiles praise? Because exile is not the end of the story. That's how. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In His great mercy, He has given us one new birth, new life, spiritual birth. So now you are a heavenly citizen. You have a new family, a new last name, and all that is God's is now yours in Christ. Into what? A living Hope. Hope is not the wishful thinking. I hope this happens biblically. Hope, biblically, is a confidence that a better future awaits. That's what biblical hope is. How can I have confidence that a better future awaits? Notice what it says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We have hope because of the resurrection. We are to be people not just of the crucifixion, but people of the resurrection. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then his promise is secure, and he will return, and a better future awaits. And so we know with confidence that exile is not the end of the story. This morning, as we close, some of you are really close to hitting the eject button on your faith. Because you feel lost. Maybe you've just been caught up in the ways of Babylon and you just feel lost. Or maybe you feel exiled by God. You're like, I don't know where I fit. what I want you to know is Jesus gets the final word. Not what's happening in our world around us, not what's happening in our country, not what's happening in technology or in our culture. The resurrected Savior gets the final word and you possess a living hope. And so this morning, would you just stand with me as We close, and we're going to sing together about this living hope, Jesus. And for some, you need to just declare by faith that exile is not the end of your story. In fact, for some, you're in the space where you need to embrace the resurrection of Jesus personally. where he gets the final word in your story and you give your life to him and you say, Jesus, I don't know how to go through this life and I feel like I'm tossed and I'm thrown in every direction. And so today I lean into you Today, I put my trust and hope in what you did and what you accomplished, not just on the cross, but that you rose to new life and you are right now living and active. We worship a living Savior who gives new life. God, today, I want to have new life. I want you to have the final word, not my circumstance. I want you to have the final word, not this relationship. I want you to have the final word, not this addiction. Would you run to the resurrected?